Well, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to be covering verses 1 through 4. In this section of Scripture, it's been on my mind a lot recently. I've been thinking about it, praying about it, meditating on it. Uh, reason being is that it's the theme verse for our summer camp this year. And uh, the, the summer camp is called Vision 2020. And, uh, you know, choosing the scripture really didn't come about in some holy man of God kind of way. It was just that I'm a dork. I love dad jokes. I'm like, it's the year 2020. It's got to be something about vision. So get it, 2020 vision. See, you know it's a bad dad joke when it has to be explained. I'm terrible. You should pray for my kids. Because my wife just last night, she's sitting there in the chair next to me. I'm on my phone like just cracking up. And I'm repeating these jokes to her. And she's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> she laughs more at me than with me. But uh, anyway, uh, but, you know, as I've been thinking about this, though, about the importance of having eyes that are fixed on Jesus, having his vision for the world be our vision for the world, it started to become that much more important as we just see the chaos that our world is going through right now. And... You know, Satan, he is a brilliant strategist. He's been around for a long time. If I've got my Bible trivia right, he's been around since, oh, the foundations of the world. And he was there in the garden. He's been watching people for a long time. He knows what makes us tick. He knows even Christians what, what can trip them up and, and throw them off their game? And some 3,000 years ago, King Solomon wrote, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, even in our world of technology where it seems that new things are coming out all the time, you know, really the landscape of humanity has not changed at all. People are still people. And the sin that haunts us haunted Solomon way back then, haunted Adam and Eve even in the garden, that the sin and uh, the common case of man and woman on this earth has remained totally unchanged. There's nothing new under the sun. And there's a scene from heaven that we see in the book of Job, chapter one, probably pretty familiar to most of us, uh, it says, one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? 
Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. And so I want to highlight the part there where God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So the the Hebrew word used for consider is the word sum, and it means to put in place, to set, to appoint, or to make. And, And really in this context, though, its meaning is to strategize. If you've ever played the game of risk, you set your players in certain spaces to try to win, or if you're sick of playing the game, to try to lose and finally end the nine-hour game. Uh, But it's exactly what God is talking about here. Have you set Job in place? Have you set an enemy around Job to try and attack him? Um, Have you formulated a plan of attack against Job? And of course, Satan's response is, you know I have, but I can't get to him because you've blessed him so much, and I can't get around that hedge of protection, so that's why. And, uh, you know, as the story goes on, I mean, God said, oh, really, you think that's it? Okay. And uh, said, have your way with them. And in the end... Job was still praising God. Um, And the enemy has a plan formulated for each one of us that belongs to the Lord. Now, I don't want to be guilty of giving Satan too much credit because it's not always Satan. He's one guy. And he is not like God where he's omnipresent in all places at all times. He's not all powerful like God. He is in no way, shape, or form God's equal. So we don't want to give him too much power and say that, oh, Satan has personally formulated a strategy against each and every one of us. But guess what? The enemy as a whole has. Satan and all of his demons in this spiritual battle that we're fighting They stand up and recognize when somebody gives their heart and their mind and their life to the Lord, and they formulate a plan of attack. And we also need to understand something about the enemy, that they're not just running around blindly trying to do evil things. Like, okay, I'm going to give this guy a flat tire on his way to work, (laughs) and then just run off and then go do the next evil thing. It's not just random that they're strategists. They have a plan of attack. And it seems to me right now, looking around at what's going on in America and and, uh, in many, many ways, how the church is responding to what's going on, uh, one of the greatest tactics they're using now is a form of guerrilla warfare. And if you don't know what that is, guerrilla warfare relies heavily on confusing and misdirecting your opponent. Um, you know, people who, who are using guerrilla warfare tactics, often they use smoke bombs and, uh, I'm sorry, lost, and stun grenades uh, to d- disorient their enemy's senses. And really what it is, if you don't know where the enemy is, 
it's a lot harder to hit him. And so there's confusion going on all around our world right now. And, and there's so many things going on where we're looking at it and going, that's the enemy, they're right there, they're right there. But what we need to remember is that people are not the enemy. And in the past six months, we've seen our world ravaged with things that none of us have seen in our lifetime. In fact, if you rewind the clock back, if you could you know, be a time traveler and just go tell yourself the things in, in 2019, go back one year and tell yourself the things that you were going to see in 2020, you'd laugh at yourself and be like, yeah, right, come on. That's no way, no way. And yet here we are. We're in the midst of things that we would think only happens in the Middle East or in Venezuela or in just some far off place. No, that doesn't happen here. And we're seeing it happen here in front of our eyes. And as uh, the church, we need the Holy Spirit to calm and focus our hearts and for us to realize who the real enemy is and what our objective is here. In Ephesians 6, 12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Guys, the people that you see on your screens that just make your blood boil, they are not your enemy. They would like to make themselves your enemy, I'm sure. And Satan would like to convince you that they are the real enemy. But Satan is working behind the scenes to motivate these things. They are not the true enemy. They are people that Jesus Christ himself died for. It says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So how do we fight against that? You know, do we, do we act like Peter and uh, pull out swords and go cutting ears off? You know, Peter thought that he was doing the right thing. Jesus had a spiritual objective in mind and, and Peter did recognize an enemy right in front of his face. Yes, they had made themselves enemies of the cross, even though they were using the cross. And yet, Peter's decision to pull out a sword was not the right decision. Jesus said, no, that's not how we're going to fight this battle. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, it says, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. And there are certainly some strongholds in our world right now. However, we're not going to bust them down with swords and guns and tanks and whatever we can come up with. It has to be through the power that the Lord is giving us. And when we're walking in this knowledge, we're going to realize that the, the people who try to make themselves our enemies are not truly our enemies. And it's the power that's working behind all of that. In, uh, there's a verse that says, the power that now works in the sons of disobedience is according to the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan himself. And that is what's going through our world right now. And so we need to remember 
who the real enemy is and how to fight against it. And God gives us a, a battle plan here in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, that, that sets in focus how we're supposed to combat this. It says, so if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for our time together. God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be here, that you would minister to each one of us. And Lord, whatever's going on in our lives, Lord, so maybe there's some of us here who the things that are going on out there in America are the least of our troubles and the least of our worries. Lord, maybe we're fighting battles that are much greater than that. Father, wherever we're at, I just pray that you would meet us. Speak to us. Minister to us through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the beginning right here, he says, so if you have been raised with Christ, and I don't know, it depends on, I guess, how, what your viewpoint is, is it, as you read this, maybe some people, if they see that, well, you know, I'm not quite raised with Christ yet, you know, I'll get there. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's saying pretty much it's like a rhetorical question. No, you have been raised with Christ. And this is actually one of the pictures that baptism uses, that as we're laid down into the water and then we're brought back up, it's symbolic of us being raised with Christ to new life. We're reborn in that moment, uh, in the moment that we receive him, not just upon baptism. Um, but Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, it says that God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, it says, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's all past tense. It already happened. We are presently seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. You know, that's just something, I had a, a, a talk with some of the youth group students recently, and it's just kind of mind-blowing that, guess what, guys? You've already lived all of your life already. It's already over because you're already up in heaven, and every decision that you're going to make, you already make. You still have the choice each day to make that decision, but God already knows what you're going to make because the end is already written. It's like, wait a minute, what? It's kind of mind-blowing when you're young of going, wait, huh? And it's something that like, we're not ever going to fully grasp with our minds because we have finite minds. It's like everything has a beginning, middle, and end, and we can't understand God's economy because it's so far beyond our comprehension. But we can accept it as truth. We can realize it. We can bring it into our minds and our hearts, even if we don't fully understand it. But he says from there, if you have been raised with Christ, what do we do? Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I don't know about you guys. I like the fact that it tells us that Christ is seated. 
Because when people are going through just absolute chaos and things stirring and, and attacks are happening, most people aren't just sitting down. You know, if you look in all the war movies and everything, you don't, you don't ever just see people just sitting around when bullets are flying over their head. You wanna go get coffee? Ah, sure, let's do it. No, they're up, they're running around, they're, they're formulating plans, they're trying to figure things out. And Jesus, again, like talking about the game of risk, Jesus is not at a table trying to figure out what to do now that the enemy is attacked. He's in complete control. He already saw this from before he ever started the world. He knew it was going to happen. When he was still with us here on, on the earth, he gave us a detailed view of what it was going to look like in Matthew 24. And then, you know, even before that in the book of Daniel, and then he spoke to John in Revelation and all of those prophecies about the end times, they're woven throughout the entire Bible. He told us all this was gonna happen. And so it's unfolding exactly as he has seen. Not a single piece of it is out of place from what he already knew would happen. And so he is seated. He's in complete control. And it just does my heart good to remember that. That as I'm, you know, hit with something, it takes me by surprise. But him, he understands it. He knows it's under control. Now, granted, there's a difference between hearing about something and then experiencing the reality of that. You know, in, in battles, if you've got a company that's marching forward and then there's an enemy set to ambush them, you know, if you get intel before you march that way that there's an enemy posted, you're going to be ready for them. There's still going to be a battle, and I'm sure when the first shot rings out, it's going to make everyone's heart jump. However, you're going to be much, much more prepared. And that's exactly, I believe, why Jesus gave us such a detailed view of the end times. He didn't have to do that, you know. I'm so grateful that he did. He could have just told us about salvation, and there it is. Okay, go on your merry way. And then us in the end times just looking around like, ah, what is going on? And yet Jesus told us, don't worry about it. Comfort one another with these words. And then it says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So we've all heard the term, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And guys, recently the world has been screaming for our attention. It has been shouting through megaphones that are piped into 10 million watt sound systems. It is something that the, Lord, or that the world has just been screaming. And yet, how does the Lord speak to us? Does he always prefer just to shout from the heavens? I don't know about any of you guys, I always thought, you know, it'd be a much more effective tactic if God just, you know, split the heavens wide, stuck his face down here and said, hey, listen up. And, you know, much more people would believe. But that's not really true. You know, Jesus spoke about that when he talked about uh, Lazarus and the rich man after their death. He says, if they're not going to believe the law and the prophets, they're not going to believe 
if somebody rises from the dead, they're not going to believe if God sticks his head down from the clouds or they only worship him in fear and it won't be an in truth. But, sorry, losing my place. I did find the first service with my notes not being formatted and yeah, we'll get through it, don't worry. <laughs> okay, so how does God get our attention? He whispers in 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13. This is Elijah. And, uh, you know, he had already defeated the 450 prophets of Baal. I mean, just this amazing show of God's power. It was incredible. And then he heard, oh, yeah, Jezebel, she wants to kill you. He's like, ah, and he runs away. And he runs as far as he can go. And then the Lord sets him down. And the Lord says to him, go and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the, the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. And sometimes when we're asking God to speak to us, we're looking for a bolt of lightning or an earthquake, you know, something just huge and dramatic. God, just reveal that you're here. And we're not sitting down quietly, waiting for that still small voice, that quiet whisper. We're looking for the flash and the bang and the fireworks and everything. You know, when I was uh, a young believer, you know, first walking with the Lord, I used to almost brag that if God wanted me to do something or if God wanted me to change directions or something like that, that he would practically have to hit me over the head with a two by four to get me to go, you know, just slap me on the back of the head. Hey, dummy, over there. And I, I used to kind of just, yeah, that's, that's who I am. That's how I respond. That's my learning style, if you will. And then I read Psalm 32, and it says, do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. And right before that, in Psalm 32, God says, I will guide you with my eye. You know how brothers or sisters or spouses or just sometimes best friends, maybe more than anyone, twins, uh, they can communicate to each other without even a word. They can just look at each other and they know what they're talking about. You know, I've had that before and, you know, I've taught youth group for more years than I can count. And I've had so many times where kids just kind of look at each other and they start laughing and they haven't even said anything yet. And I'm like, I know you're laughing about me. I just don't know what it is. <laughs> but, you know, they're just communicating with each other without even saying a word. And God says, guys, that's how I want you to be with me. I want you to be led without a word of me just motioning. And through the Holy Spirit, we can sense that God is moving or leading or changing direction. And we move with him. 
And he doesn't want to have to put a bit in our mouths and yank us to one direction or yank us to the other. He just simply wants to be able to whisper. And in order to be able to hear the voice of God, we have to be quiet. We have to silence the screaming of the world and tune in to what he has to say. And that's not easy. Again, you know, when the world is shouting so loud all the time, it's not easy to get quiet and hear the Lord. But God didn't say, follow me if it's easy, did he? No, he, he says, follow me. And, and so we have to get to that place where we're being quiet, where we're with him, where we're waiting and expecting to hear that still small voice. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, looking to Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith. So I've used this analogy so many times over the years, but I, I love it. I think it's such a perfect illustration of keeping our eyes on Jesus. And that's with mountain biking. And I love to, to ride single track trails. And most of the time they're about shoulder width. So you don't have a whole lot of room to go back and forth. And a lot of these trails that I ride, you know, they're on the side of a cliff. I was up on Canfield Mountain just the other day and realized pretty momentous realization for me. I've been riding Canfield now for 25 years, so it's pretty cool. But they've put some new trails in, and I was riding one around the backside, uh, and it, it's got a great view of Hayden Lake if you stop. Because if you try and enjoy the view while you're riding, going, oh, Hayden's beautiful right now, right into a tree or right off a cliff or something like that. You have to have your focus in the middle of the trail. And if there is an obstacle, a rock, a root, a tree, whatever it is that you don't want to hit, if you focus on that obstacle, if my eyes are on the tree and I'm like, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to clip the tree with my handlebar or my forehead, one of the two. But if my focus is on the path that I want to go around the tree, my body's going to follow because the body follows wherever the eyes go. And uh, I've got a friend who he was a whitewater rafting guide for a whole bunch of years. And uh, in whitewater rafting, quite often, you can't hear somebody, even from one edge of the boat to the other, let alone to another team that's behind you in a separate raft. And so they, they have this rule that they go by, and it's called point positive. And it means that if you're trying to get somebody's attention, you don't, like let's say there's a giant outcropping of rocks that will trap your raft and flip you and drown everybody. If, if that's the case, you don't point at the rocks because they're gonna be like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to go that way. No, they've agreed upon a rule that you point positive. You don't point at the negative that you don't want to go to. You want to point at the positive that you do want to. So if there's a path around that, that that's where you point. 
Instead of just like, hey, look at that danger. And then everybody's like, oh, and then they're in the danger. You know, and really, I, I know Christians who uh, have gone through and swear by AA, but they're, the programs like that, really, I think they're missing something huge. Because in that, the focus becomes, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. And that's not where God wants us. That is focusing on the negative. What Jesus says is, keep your eyes fixed on me. So we keep our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus, and we're going to be going closer to Jesus all the time. And if we start to drift, what's the solution? Get your eyes right back on Jesus. And we all know the story of Peter, that that he stepped out of the boat. He says, Lord, if it's you, call me out to you. Jesus was walking on the water. He says, okay, come out. And he probably regretted saying, call me out to you. But he stepped out on the water and he was walking on the water. And it was when he took his eyes off of Jesus and started looking at the landscape of what was going on around him that he started to sink. And the same is true for every single one of us today, that if our eyes are on the landscape around us, if that's what the focus of our minds and hearts is, we're going to be sinking. We're going to feel lost, panicked, desperate. But if our eyes are locked and fixed upon Jesus, he's going to carry us through. And it says from there that you died. And it's, I love how blunt the Bible is in so many ways. You died. Get over it. And sometimes I need a reminder of this. The old me is dead. I don't live for the things that I used to live for. Okay, so when I say sometimes I need a reminder of that, it's, it's most of the time. And if I'm being totally honest, it's all the time. I need that reminder that I died. And guys, again, going to that picture of baptism, the picture of baptism, when, when the pastors lay somebody down in the water, it is the picture of you being laid in the grave, that you are dying to the old man, to the flesh, to the old ways. And then when you come up, you are a new man, you are a new woman, you have been raised to new life, and the old life is dead, gone, buried. You know, people visit cemeteries and bring flowers and things like that, but I haven't seen anybody bringing cheeseburgers, you know, because guess what? You know, you're not going to feed a corpse. You're not going to feed somebody who's dead. And Jesus is trying to remind us, don't try to feed the flesh. Don't. The, The old man is dead. Don't go back to those ways. We need to remember that. And he says, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so this is stated as an absolute fact. It doesn't say that if you've had a really good week and you've prayed a bunch and you're super close with the Lord, that you're hidden with Christ in God. No, it's not about that. It's a statement of fact of that's how it is. If you have received Jesus Christ, if you have believed in him, 
and accepted his payment for your sins, that you are hidden with Christ in God. In our lives, as nasty and as messed up as all of us are, and the ones who think, no, I got it all together, yours is probably worse than any of ours, but God just sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see how messed up our sins are. Now, that's how it is in heaven. That's absolutely how it is in heaven. When God sees each and every one of us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, not how messed up we are. But remember Jesus's model prayer that he spoke to the disciples? In that, he said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here on earth, it can be more or less up to us if our lives are hidden or shown, if Christ is hidden or shown. God doesn't force his will on any of us. Of course, we know it's his will in all situations that we go through at all times for Christ to be magnified, for Jesus to be shown in our lives to our neighbors, to our friends, to our enemies, that he would be shown through that. But again, God doesn't force his will on any of us. It's up to us if we want to walk in the spirit and do that. Pastor Bob Davis over at North Country years ago had spoken this and it just rocked me to my core. And it was this statement, is Christ hidden so that we can be seen? Or are we hidden so that Christ can be seen? You know, it's like with John the Baptist, when his disciples came to him and they were kind of freaking out, they're going, John, you know, Jesus, everybody's following after him. And it's basically what they're saying. We're not as popular as we used to be. They're not coming to us anymore. They're going to Jesus. And John's response to that was, I must decrease and he must increase. I need to get smaller. Jesus needs to get bigger. And in my life and in the life of every single one of us, that's the goal. Less of me, more of him. That Jesus would be shown. Because let me guarantee you, the world does not need more Eric. I promise you that. The world needs more Jesus. And there is nothing more true than that. And then when he says here, when Christ, who is your life, appears. This is another one of those on earth as it is in heaven moments. Because it says here, Christ is your life. And it's say, not saying, well, Christ could be your life or Christ might be your life. It's saying Christ is your life. And without him, guys, there is no life. The Bible says that we were dead in our sins in trespasses, that we were the walking dead. And in him is the only time that we could ever experience life. And so it says that Christ is your life. And not only that, but when we come to him, we have to surrender everything. You know, it's not like, I don't know if you guys have heard the stories about Constantine, 
Uh, but, but he became the, the emperor of the Roman army and, and supposedly became this Christian. And so he wanted his whole army baptized. And, and really kind of what it looks like is he was trying to do it as a good luck charm in battle. Uh, but what he did is he like had them baptized, but their sword in their hands was out of the water. They went under. Guys, God doesn't bargain like that. He doesn't make deals like, okay, no problem. You can keep your sword in your hand. He's like, everything or nothing. You're either in all the way or you're not. And that doesn't mean that if we struggle with something or you know, there's some besetting sin that, oh, you're not even a believer. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who say, okay, God, I'll come to you, but this is what I'm doing and I'm never going to change that. Well, that person hasn't truly come to the Lord. Paul exclaimed that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and something that I've been reminded of, um, especially through, you know, the, the quarantine, the first craziness that we went through this year uh, of, of so many people just going and just raiding the stores for all the toilet paper because it's all about my life. I have to get everything for me. I was reminded that the goal of the Christian life is not to make it out alive, is not self-preservation. That's not our goal, guys. Our goal is to see Christ magnified. Paul said to live is Christ. If I'm living, it's all about Jesus. And if I die, that's gain. I don't know how many of the toilet paper hoarders were Christians, but... <laughs> The ones who were, it's like, was that a little out of focus? Was that me getting everything I can get just to preserve my own life? You know, I look at the story of, of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and, and, uh, and the rest of the mission, missionaries there in Ecuador. They were ministering to a tribe where I think the average lifespan of a male in that tribe was somewhere around 21. People didn't grow up to even see their 30s because they would kill each other. They, were, they would throw spears at each other. And the murder rate was so incredibly high. And missionaries had been there before and almost died and got out. And, and Jim Elliott and his crew, they said, you know what, we're gonna go reach these people. And Jim Elliott ended up being killed. And if you don't know the story, go, go read the book, Shadow of the Almighty. It's incredible. Uh, or even The End of the Spear. I think Nate, uh, Steve Saint wrote that one. Um, but incredible, incredible books. Uh, but what happened is Jim Elliott was killed. These, these villagers came out and the missionaries had weapons. They had guns in their plane. And they knew that if they wanted to, they could grab those guns and these tribesmen wouldn't know what hit him. And yet they, they, they made a conscious decision beforehand not to do that. Because they said, if we die, we know where we're going. If we kill them, we know where we're sending them. And so they made a decision not to do that. So it's just a reminder for every single one of us, guys, this here, on earth is not what we're trying to hold on to. 
It is what Christ is calling us to. And in the end, the hope of glory. It says here, then you also will appear with him in glory. And guys, just remembering this and having this hope is something that's going to purify us. John talks about that in 1 John chapter 3. And it says, dear friends, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we all know about the gold refining process that it goes into the fire and it gets drawn out and the impurities come to the top and you scrape them, you deal with them, they get rid of them. The word says that just remembering this hope purifies us. Why? How? Well, it's really when you see what's going to be. When you know what Christ is calling us to. And you know what we are going to have in heaven. And don't get me wrong. It's not that every single treasure is on heaven, in heaven. I mean, the Lord gives us many, many, many things here, tangible through the Holy Spirit, that are gifts here for today. And um, yet, when you have your mind and your heart fixed on heaven, then it really sorts out what's important in this world. A friend asked me years ago something that has just stuck with me to this day. He says, what problems do you have right now that would not be immediately solved by the rapture? It's like, yep, (laughs) there is nothing that consumes any time of worry today that would still be a worry once I'm in the presence of Jesus. Nothing. I mean, money, not even a thing anymore. Streets are paved with gold. Jesus is like, everything I have is yours. Don't worry about it. You know, relationships all made perfect before the throne. And it's like nothing that we worry about down here is ultimately important. It's all about what's up there. And so I just encourage you guys that we would have our hearts and our minds fixed upon what's truly important And I'm not talking about that whole idea of so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. The more that we focus our hearts and our minds on Jesus, the more we're going to want to impact heaven for all of eternity. The more we're going to want to make each moment count, to love our brothers and sisters, to reach our neighbors, to draw people into the kingdom of God. The the more we know about heaven, the more we're going to want to impact this world. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that you see us as that completed work. Lord, that your work in us is truly finished as you see it in heaven. Lord, I just pray that each one of us would be able to come to you today and receive that mercy, that grace, that strength to help for today. Lord, move us, use us, draw us close to you. And Lord, if there's anyone here who is yet to receive you, God, I just pray by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to them, that they would know that it's simply about receiving your forgiveness for their sin 
about receiving that and confessing it before others and living it out, God. It's just that simple. Lord, be with us. Draw people to yourself through our surrendered lives. In Jesus' name, amen.